Well, good morning. I'm glad you could be with me today in our Wednesdays in the Word. We're in the midst of a study of the book of Romans, and today we begin chapter 7 of that book. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 of that chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now that we've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, we now can serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code." In chapter 6 of the book of Romans, which we've now finished, we were examining the broad question or the broad issue of sin and the life of the believer. We discovered that sin, though forgiven for those justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who've repented and believed, that sin, though forgiven, can still hurt us as redeemed believers. It can still have a corrupting effect in us as redeemed believers. The bottom line of that sort of reminder is to tell us, listen, though we're redeemed, we are going to face a continuing battle with the downward pull of sin and temptation in our lives. Our new life in Christ, our new hearts, that new creation we've been given, faces a very real enemy that's still existing in this fallen world we find ourselves in through the actions of the enemy of our souls, Satan, and even through the old man that is still programmed in the members of our bodies, as Romans 7 will then develop further for us later in the chapter. The point of it all, chapter 6, was to drive home to us that giving in to temptation will still hurt us even though it doesn't offset the reality that we've been justified by faith. Sin can hurt us here and now, even though it can no longer have the potential of removing eternal life from the redeemed believer. Chapter 6 also reminded us of a couple of points. And I'm going over these because they're the proper backdrop to our study of chapter 7. We learned in chapter 6 that victory over sin is tied to several things. Number one, what I've already mentioned, that God has made us a new creation. It wasn't merely an intellectual will-related thing that happened when we responded to the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. God has made us new, born anew. We are different at the deepest level of our life now. New people, where once we were dead people. Victory over this struggle, continuing struggle, with temptation and sin in our lives, 
calls for us to consider or reckon, and we spent time talking about those terms, to reckon certain things to be true. Number one, to reckon and consider the fact that the new self we are at the deepest level no longer is oriented towards sin. It wants to be in alignment with the righteousness of God. In other words, we are dead to sin in the sense of our core of our being. We are also called to consider, to reckon the fact that because that's true, we no longer have to sin. Uh, there's victory in the battle with sin possible for the believer. But that victory will require, number one, that we make a continuing decision to surrender our lives to the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we make a continuing surrender to, in Romans 12, one sense, present our body as a living sacrifice, uh, giving up the driver's seat to our life and determining as redeemed people that we will let him be the Lord in our lives. There's no growth, there's no continuing victory over sin for one who has not made that determination. Secondly, victory requires us to be dependent people. One of the things that happened when we were justified in God's eyes, when we were redeemed, is that the Holy Spirit indwelt us. The Holy Spirit now becomes that source of strength that we lack in our own being. We are living now with the Holy Spirit's enablement. The Holy Spirit will not enable us in the battle against sin unless we are surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we are surrendered people, God promises through the work of his Holy Spirit to give us a strength we lacked otherwise. Chapter 6 ended, and this is the bridge to our study today, with the reminder to us that as redeemed believers, we are not staying static. We are not staying on a level plane. In point of fact, based on the decisions we are making about temptation and sin, about surrender and dependency, we are either going to be growing in sanctification, growing in holiness and discipleship, or we were going to be spiraling downward into practical slavery to sin and temptation in our lives. Growing or diminishing, that's the day-to-day -day reality for the believer's life. Now, chapter 7 opens, turning our attention to the issue of what is the relationship of the redeemed believer to the law of God. In other words, if I'm now redeemed, do I even need to be that concerned about the law of God any longer in my life? And the answer that we get throughout the seventh chapter of Romans, and by the way, it's the answer we get throughout the New Testament in general, is that obedience is a prerequisite. It is always a prerequisite for a meaningful relationship with God. Obedience is the prerequisite for eternal life in relationship with God. In obedience, we've already seen we couldn't exert, and therefore we needed to rest in the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But on a day-to-day -day level, on what's called the temporal level, obedience is still necessary. If we are disobedient, even as redeemed believers, as redeemed children of God, our temporal day-to-day -day sense of relationship with God is definitely disrupted. Now, why would this be true? 
Why is this obedience so foundational to relationship with God, both eternally and temporally? And the answer to that, it has to do with the very nature of God, his attributes. He is holy, he is righteous, and he is just. Uh, That which is unholy can't dwell in his presence. That which is unrighteous can't dwell in his presence. And because God is just, that which is unholy, that which is unrighteous, demands justice, demands penalty to be paid. In the sense of salvation, Romans 3.23 told us, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 reminded us the wages of sin is death. But of course, the wonder of the gospel that we encountered in chapter 1, verse 16 Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. God offers us, as we repent and believe in the gospel, forgiveness for our sin. Then he takes away eternal accountability for us. And yet, even though that is true and wonderfully true, uh, the fact remains that God's law, like the law of mankind continues to have application in our daily walk. Speaking of this accountability and application, consider this fact. Accountability to a human law will continue while we live under that law. Or to put it a different way, when we live within the confines of a country or authority. Romans 13 tells us that civil government at all levels, but particularly uh, on the local level and the national level, exists to carry the sword, to keep order in the midst of a fallen world. It matters whether you keep the law or not. And the police of of a nation are there to ensure that you do keep the law and to punish those who break the law. That's a given dynamic. We understand it in relationship to human activity. God is saying, Remember that in relationship to divine activity in terms of your religious life, your spiritual life, your walk with me. In the, in the human sense, my accountability to a law ends when I leave the country enforcing the law or when I die. I don't have any continuing accountability if I'm dead. If I leave the country... If I've been living in the United States and I suddenly move to France, the laws of France now become binding, not the law of the United States. Or to put it in, if you stay in the United States, consider that I've moved from one state to another state. The fact of the matter is, the speed laws for traveling in Pennsylvania don't apply if I'm traveling in Texas. If I'm in Texas, the speed laws of Texas are what apply. You follow the reasoning here. When you're under, when you're alive, when you're living in an area, you are culpable for the laws of that land. Romans 7, as the verses that I read to you, gave us an example of that principle by talking about marriage laws and reminded us that marriage laws are true laws and binding. However, those binding natures of the true law of marriage are released and gone in the face of the death of a spouse. (laughs) 
marriage laws are no longer binding when the partner has died. Using the illustration and developing it for us in these verses, he says, listen, uh, if your husband is still alive, you can't go ahead and marry somebody else because to do so is to commit adultery. You would be guilty of adultery. But if your spouse dies, and that's true for the husband or true for the wife, the law of marriage is no longer binding on you. You're not guilty of anything if you then marry another. You follow the principle? It's like the speed laws. <laughs> if I'm now in Texas, it doesn't matter that I broke a speed law in Pennsylvania if the speed law is different in Texas. Laws are binding within certain conditions. One of the fellows I particularly respect was challenging me thinking about these issues, and he said, listen, no one's ever guilty of adultery in a cemetery. <laughs> what does it mean? I mean, once people are dead, that particular problem is no longer existing. No longer unfaithfulness can enter the picture because they're dead. All right, you follow that point? Now, keeping that point in mind, that the law is no longer binding on an individual in that sense, God says to us that in relationship to his law, we have actually died to the law. In verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In other words, like the wife whose husband has died and she's now bound to another, so also things have changed dramatically for us in relationship to God's law. We have died to the law in one sense, but now we are bound to another aspect of that law. Now, what does that mean? How does that work out as we begin to relate to this question of the believer and keeping the law of God? Well, first off, just by way of reminder to build on what we've been examining, we've died to the law in the sense that our relationship with God is now rooted in the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, not our ability to be obedient to the law. That's the whole essence of the gospel that we studied in chapters 1 to 5. As far as the law is concerned, therefore, in terms of our eternal life, just like the wife whose husband has died, we are now dead to the law. We now belong to Christ. We, It is he, not the law, that decides our fate. Scripture frames that in different ways. It says, for example, that we have passed out of judgment into life in him. <laughs> All right, so there, partially dying to the law means in terms of my eternal life, ultimate accountability before God. I have now died to the law. I am now living to a different law. I am bound now to the cross and to what Christ has done for me. But as we discovered in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, while the law can no longer condemn me in the sense of my eternal life, that I'm now tied to the perfect life of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me, Romans 6 said, Understand that sin obviously remains a problem. Sin obviously continues to be a dilemma for us. Sin 
If we as redeemed believers who now have the certainty of justification and eternal life, that if we choose to give in to temptation in our life to displease God by disobedience to his truth, that sin choice will hurt us. That sin choice will bring guilt into our lives. That sin choice will even bring God's disciplinary hand in our life, as Hebrews 12 reminds us, he is our Heavenly Father. If we've been redeemed children and adopted into his family, he is going to take out a very interactive and dynamic, proactive parenting process. And he will discipline us when things are not right in our life. And Romans 6 used the phrase, we would become enslaved once again to what God has set us free from. All right, what's the point? Even though redeemed, even though justified, even though having that future and a hope and passing out of condemnation into life, sin has the possibility of creating a very, very real barrier in our day-to-day relationship with God and has very much the potential of creating damage in our lives and in the lives of other people that we would care about. What's the point? We simply can't ignore keeping the law even though we're not under the law. You see, we've passed out of being under the law in the sense of earning our salvation. (laughs) No, we still have to keep the law because of the damage, the temporal damage that sin causes. You see, keeping the law for the believer, the redeemed believer, is no longer an issue of security, like I won't be saved unless I do that. No, you weren't... You couldn't have been saved by how well you did it before. You can't be saved by how well you're doing it now. No, we're saved because of what Christ has done for us. But keeping the law now helps to remove some of the damage that sin could continue to cause us as redeemed children in this world. We now keep the law to keep damage away, not to maintain salvation or to earn salvation. Let me repeat that. We now keep the law to keep damage away, not to earn salvation or to somehow keep salvation. Do you see that distinction? Now, Romans 7 is going to build much on that distinction for us to show us that even though keeping the law is not tied to eternal life, it is very much tied to the quality of our life here and now and therefore is very important to God. And God is calling for us to be good, faithful stewards of our life here and now. Now, Romans 7 builds on all of this. Listen to these words as we move forward in verse 4. Or verses, yeah, verse 4. For now we do this in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body, bearing fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we can serve in the new way, the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. We now obey the law to bear fruit. We no longer obey the law to be saved. We are saved because of what Christ has done for us. 
but we still obey the law. We obey the law in order that we may bear fruit for God. <laughs> we keep the law so that our lives can be productive, can make a difference in this world. To put it a different way, we now obey in order to serve God, not in order to be saved. We now obey the law, not purely to protect ourselves from temporal damage, from sin and its corrupting effects in our life. That was the point of Romans 6. Now we die to the law so that we can serve God in a new way, a way tied to fruit-bearing and productivity. When we repented and believed, we were released from the law. We died to the law in the sense of condemnation. That problem was solved. Now, the, work, the law of God works to guide our lives, not condemn us. <laughs> the law of God now helps us to understand the type of life he is pleased with and what, enabled by his spirit, we are to commit ourselves to be doing. The law will align with the new self that God has made us. And it will encourage us to be who he's called us to be. Romans 7 verse 22 will tell us, and we'll develop it later, that we now, because of our new hearts, delight in the law of God within the deepest level of us. And God says now that delight can start to be and needs to be reflected in your day-to-day -day choices. Notice the phrase, we were released from the law in order to, that held us captive, so that we could serve in the new way of the Spirit. Being released from the law enables us to serve in the new way. New in what sense? Well, in two different senses. And again, this is pretty important, radical information for the believer, the redeemed believer, when they consider, what should I be doing with my life in this world now that I am redeemed? Well, the first way in which it's new is that now, as a redeemed believer, I serve God, keep his law, not to be saved, but because I am saved. And that's a point I've developed for you already several times in our session today. That's a new thing, to serve not to be saved, but because I am saved. But secondly, the passage underscores for us that it's a new way, a serving in a new way, because now you and I have the possibility of serving God enabled by the Holy Spirit's power, not merely by our own self-effort and self-discipline. The fact remains that even though we've been made new creations, we still don't have the innate strength to obey the law and to defeat the enemy. We need a power beyond the new creation, the new self that we've become, to have that victory and that fruit. That power, that enablement, that strength, that supplemental reality that we need is found in the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so, really, it's not any kind of mistake or some sort of uh, non-directed, uh, disconnected message that the rest of Romans 7 and all of Romans 8, or much of it, 
reminds us of the important role that the Holy Spirit will now be playing in the life of the believer. And we're going to study much more about that in the time ahead. So my question to you as we draw our study today to a close is, as you reflect on your life as a redeemed believer, and I'm speaking to those of you who've repented and believed in the gospel, and those of you, if you're listening to me today who haven't, please repent and believe in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That's your first and foremost responsibility. But now to those who've done that, I speak to you and I challenge you, as you reflect on your life in this world, are you living in the old way or are you living in the new way? Far too many believers, having rested in the cross to be saved, to pass out of condemnation into life, continue to live in this world in the old way instead of the new way. God is interested in us being in the new way. Are you understanding in this new way what it means to die to the law? Are you understanding that that means you're no longer obeying God's law in order to be saved or stay saved, but because you are saved? Are you now understanding what it means to bear fruit for God, which is the other phrase used here? Realizing that your life that's left to you in this world as a redeemed child of God is not something to waste but something to invest, something to be used for his purposes and his glory. We'll have much more to say about that reality as well. Are you now serving in the new way of the Spirit? Or are you still trying to carry out the old way of self-reliance and self-determination and self-discipline? So many amazing facts. Today I'm just touching on a number of them. The chapter will develop them for us. Join me as we continue in our study, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. God bless.